Welcome back to a special Kentucky Derby Week edition of the Horse Race, your weekly look at politics, policy, and elections in Massachusetts. I'm Steve Cazella, president of the Massing Polling Group. And I'm Jennifer <laughs> Smith, news editor of the Dorchester Reporter, who will not be hanging out watching some <laughs> horse racing this week. I'm so sorry. It is. It's horse racing weekend. Everybody, even people who don't watch horse racing, should watch it this weekend. It's the first weekend in May. It's a very important weekend. It is. And um, here to give us an update on all the betting things and which horses we should be <laughs> paying attention to, we have chief actual horse racing correspondent, Jen Smith. Uh, bet on the fast one. Yes, the, the one that runs the fastest. If you pick that one, you get money or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't bet on the one that runs the wrong way down the down the track, around the circle. Like, yes. I mean, I think that's no, it's, basically it's, it's the, an oval. It's an oval. Well, yeah, again, don't 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 uh, bet on the horse that thinks it's running in a circle. It's going right. to end up doing halfway through the loop. So speaking of live horse racing, um, just a reminder, Sunday, June 9th, we have our live. We're actually going to the horse races to learn some things about horse racing, and that will be at Suffolk Downs. And, and all of our listeners are invited. You can come to Suffolk Downs, hang out, watch some horse racing, learn about horse racing, and... And it's the weekend of the Belmont Stakes, not the day that we're doing it, but it is that weekend. So in case you had some nice horse racing that you watched the day before, you can join us the next day. Right. We watch can all some discuss about potting. what happened and, you know, give all of our expert takes on what just happened at the Belmont Stakes. Horses ran fast. Good job. Yes. <laughs> but uh, we're actually doing a politics podcast today, Steve, yes. allegedly. For those of you disappointed, you can tune out now if you are actually here to talk about horse racing. But we are here to talk about politics in Massachusetts. And the thing that's happened on our calendar is it's now... I think officially presidential polling season. It is presidential polling season. Steve, how do you feel about this? <laughs> is this is this is this your Kentucky Derby? It is sort of, except my Kentucky Derby lasts for a, a year and a half. Um, it's we too long. It's the longest horse race in the world. We we talk about we are going to talk about polling. Um, it is a politics podcast, and I am a pollster, so that shouldn't surprise anybody who's tuned in. But I wanted to make a commitment to you here at, at the beginning of the season, which is that we're going to do it in a way that respects the time that you invest here listening to the horse race. I always say when people ask me about polling and ask me, you know, what value is it if all it is is who's going to win and who's going to lose? And all we do is watch the scoreboard when there's a when there's important things happening on the political field or on the political track um, in the political races. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to turn the page past just talking about the horse race and look at all the other interesting stuff that is in the polls that, that get conducted. So I always say there's always other interesting questions, always policy questions, always questions about what people are looking for or what their frame of mind is as far as polling goes. We assume that by the time you get here to the horse race, you already know who's winning. You already know that Joe Biden has opened up a huge lead. We're going to go behind the headlines. Yeah, we know 2020 is a long way out. It's a big thing for a lot of people and especially Massachusetts politics watchers. But we want to keep some perspective. There's local stuff happening. Uh, we're going to talk about budget season. There's municipal elections everywhere. Some of our DAs are suing the federal government right now. But there are a lot of things that polling can tell us about how people feel about their politics and their politicians. So that's where we're going to be spending our time. So let's get into it, shall we? Yes, let's do it. Um, so the headline that you've all already seen is that after Joe Biden announced he got a huge bump in the poll numbers, another headline is that there's just an extreme amount of enthusiasm for voting. Uh, this is going to be an extremely hotly contested election season. But let's get into what's underneath that. So let's talk about a couple of the candidates from Massachusetts and start with Elizabeth Warren. So she's been on a policy tear lately. She has. She's been, I, I think it's inarguable that she's had the most policy proposals and the most substantive policy proposals of any of the sort of leading pack of candidates. Um, Andrew Yang, much further down the pack, has also been releasing just a slew of policy proposals. But in terms of, of the candidates who are both from Massachusetts and also somewhere in the conversation, she's certainly been by far producing the most policy proposals. So I wanted to look at a couple of the ones that 
that she has mentioned and just look at where the poll numbers on them actually are. One of the things that I think we should keep in mind is that Twitter is not real life, which I know can be hard to remember sometimes. But sometimes the things that we just hear people shouting about on Twitter and sort of instituting as purity tests on Twitter don't actually poll all that high. Yeah, it can be interesting just to kind of take a step back and say, well, it seems as though half of the people that you not even just follow on Twitter, but also talk to if you're pretty engaged politically, it can seem like it's a much more black or white determination as far as if you are a liberal candidate, you have to support this thing. Yes. And, and an example from the recent past is the abolish ice thing that became right. a hashtag and it, it almost seemed like it was becoming a purity test. Um, and then you did polling of Democrats, even of Democratic primary voters. And it was not that popular of a position. You know, a lot more people wanted it to be modified or just wanted to actually keep it as it is or, you know, reform it in some way, but very low support for the idea of abolishing ICE. Yeah. But then, so we have a Quinnipiac poll that came out yesterday, I think, that actually looked at some of these specific policies that Warren has been talking about. Let's start with the wealth tax. How do people actually feel about that? Right. So this would be the idea of a 70% tax on incomes over $10 million. And there we found 36% of potential Democratic primary voters said that they support the idea. 59% said that they oppose it. Mm. So this is one where Elizabeth Warren's proposal isn't popular with a majority of Democrats. Something to keep in mind also on these is because the field is so fractured, you don't actually need 50% even of Democratic primary voters, but it is useful to know that this this will not become or it has not become a Democratic purity test yet. Right. But slightly more popular is the free public college option, which of course included the debt forgiveness plan. It included um, a certain fund for uh, historically black colleges and universities. What about that one? Yeah, so there's a couple different elements of that. One is the loan forgiveness of up to $50,000. That one we did see a majority support with 57% of Democratic primary voters saying they would support that idea. Um, just straight out free public college was less popular. That one actually fell down just below 50%. We saw 45% saying that they would support that. The one that was the least popular, and this I think reminds me the most of Abolish ICE, just because it's become this this rallying cry on social media, is the idea of prisoner voting. This mm. was, of course, the thing that caused a huge dust up when Bernie Sanders was asked about it. It was the worst framing for a question ever, though, I think is the pretty much universally understood yeah, thing. No, I they think that's they true. put it in terms of should the Boston bomber be allowed to vote? And that's not really reflective of why most people are in prison. That's very true. And I, and I think that that's, you know, taking it to sort of a local angle. It reminds me a lot of looking at our sordid past, how Willie Horton was used to deny generations of people their freedom um, just because of sort of a headline-grabbing thing. And I think it echoes that in in a very sort of sinister way. However, I think that the conversation following that has has made it appear on social media that you have to be in favor of prisoner voting to sort of be a good Democrat, a good Democratic primary candidate. And this shows 31% of Democratic primary voters at this moment support the idea of allowing prisoners to vote. So what issues are Democratic voters caring about the most right now? I mean, we can kind of see how people are reacting to specific policies, but what are they prioritizing? Yeah, that's another that's a good question, because, again, you would think that it was a very different set of things. And you think it's all about prisoner voting and the Green New Deal, you know, and that sort of thing. And these things that we hear talked about and that become sort of popular hashtags. Um, It's not specific to the Green New Deal, but taking aggressive action to slow the effects of climate change was was the top. This is from a CNN poll with 82% saying they thought that was very important. Providing health insurance for all Americans, um, that was another one that was way up there. The one that I think is particularly poignant today, just because we're recording this on the day that the 
letter from Mueller to Barr was released, and, and there's a whole lot of talk about impeachment and should we do it. Another issue, which you would think on social media is some sort of purity test, only 43 percent of Democratic primary voters say impeaching Donald Trump is a very important issue for them that the Democratic candidate for president ought to support. Um, reparations for descendants of enslaved peoples, that's another one that, that was much further down the list. Mm -hmm. And I would tie this in just kind of briefly as we're talking about, for instance, those that say it's very important, somewhat important, not at all important, um, and those who identify as Democrats or leaning Democrats. You do kind of see this pan out when they're ranking candidates right now. For instance, uh, Elizabeth Warren actually is in the lead among those who say they are very liberal Democrats, again, according to that Quinnipiac poll. But then the second that you scoot over into, you know, somewhat liberal or moderate or conservative, that's where Joe Biden really does kind of take the cake in the Democratic Party. So it'll be interesting to see uh, whether or not what we kind of have always assumed would be the Sanders faction does actually end up coalescing to Warren for one reason or another. Absolutely. And I think the question for her and the question that we'll sort of need to keep an eye on is how much are issues actually, how much do they matter? You know, of course, the other thing Elizabeth Warren has done is take a strong position in favor of impeaching, of impeachment proceedings, which is another thing that, that um, you know, a certain slice of the Democratic electorate really wants. Another thing that CNN did, which I thought was interesting, was they asked what was important about candidates, about the candidates that they would support. So not just what issues they wanted the candidates to focus on, but what even matters about the candidate. And the number one issue was, has a good chance of beating Donald Trump? Uh, electability. Electability. So they may not that want... fleeting and <laughs> whimsical force. Yes. Well, it's kind of, kind of an odd thing in a way, because in a way it puts voters in the position of trying to divine what other voters would vote yeah. for. Yeah. And the best way to determine electability is to vote for someone. It It is sort of, but then like... If you're trying to calculate it based on what you think a hypothetical voter in some swing state might do, then you might come to a different conclusion than who actually agrees with you on policy. Yeah, well, people are so bad at that. If you recall back in 2016, one of the big things as well was, you know, you had all of these people confused about Trump's win because they said, well, the 25 people that I talk to on a regular basis were definitely not voting for him. But I guess someone who lives in Iowa might. So it, I don't ever know, like, how useful the discussion is, but it's certainly interesting. It is. So I guess to quickly summarize, it's people want someone who can beat Donald Trump, but they don't necessarily care as much about having somebody who wants to impeach Donald Trump, right? Um, or at least in terms of ranking issues. Um, but let's talk about what we're doing here today, other than just talking to each other. Again, always, always the point, though, just <laughs> talking to each other, getting some things out there, yes. Steve. But we're going to also get some things out there about the budget process. The House, uh, the Massachusetts State House, has finished up its budget, kicking over to the Senate. So Katie Lannon with State House News Service is going to help us out with that. Yes, and then we'll be talking about uh, two district attorneys from Middlesex and Suffolk counties who have taken legal action against immigration and customs enforcement who had been arresting people around uh, courthouses in Massachusetts. The district attorneys were concerned about the effect that that was having on people's willingness to show up for court. Um, so we'll be talking to Commonwealth Magazine's Sarah Betancourt about that. All right. Well, uh, let's go. Let's do it. The budget process in the Massachusetts state legislature can be confusing and opaque to say the least, but the first phase is complete for the moment. The House has passed their version of the budget, and now the Senate gets their crack at it. So here to catch us up and guide us through the maze of the twisty little passages that is our state's budget process, we're joined by official horse race budget chief Sherpa, Katie Lannon of the Statehouse News Service. Welcome, Katie. 
Thanks for having me. Do horses need Sherpas? I don't, but we do. Okay. We, do. we, we are the Sherpas, horses. And all of our listeners do too. <laughs> and you might ride one at one point. So there's a, there's a slight connection there and that's what matters. As long as it's on theme. <laughs> but we have a house budget. We uh, do. What are the highlights? Start us off at a top level. All right. Well, the toppest level we can get, um, technical term, <laughs> toppest level, um, they took what, what came out of committee, a, a $42.7 billion budget, added roughly $71 million in spending to it. Um, not a whole ton of major policy pieces in there. There's some l- language around drug pricing. Um, there's components dealing with lobster parts and the processing thereof. Boy, that's why I track budget policies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I knew, I knew that's what you really wanted, invited <laughs> me on to talk for. about today. But it's mostly a, a spending document, and it's pretty straightforward. There are no you know, major tax hikes or anything like that. The House is choosing to, hopefully, they say, discuss revenue later this year. So they kind of steered clear on this issue. A major infusion of education funding, although a plan to kind of develop that out, is also uh, TBD. So let's talk about some of the details for those not as familiar with the with the budget process. You said not a lot of policy in there. Tell people what you mean by that. How does policy sometimes enter, enter into the budget, and why did that not happen this time? Sure. Um, because the budget is one of the few pieces of legislation that has a, a hard deadline on it. It needs to be in place for the start of the new fiscal year in July. You often see lawmakers or the governor even looking to tackle kind of a, a pressing issue through that legislation they know will get done soon. So last year, for example, we saw a state police hiring practices commission created in the in the budget. Um, and the House tends to shy away from that, barring kind of urgent or emergent situations. They prefer to let bills go through the committee process. But you do see a lot of the, the more than 1,000 amendments that were filed are policy proposals that people choose to highlight, standalone bills that may deal with things like protecting the bee population in Massachusetts was one of them as a way to kind of elevate the discussion. Now, of course, the Senate, when they take up the the budget later this month, they have the option to add in whatever policy they feel is a good move to get in there and, you know, see what comes out in the final version. So it's certainly not going to be policy free or policy light the whole time. Yeah, but it's not exactly a great and open deliberation, as we all kind of know and has come up in, in varying articles, including a very good one that, that you and Colin Young wrote this week. Take us inside the building. What's coming up for debate? What's just kind of handled behind closed doors? What's this process actually like? Sure. I think um, anyone who watches the legislature closely, um, and I certainly understand that that's my job, and it's not a lot of other people's (laughs) jobs, so I don't expect everyone to be doing that. But if you watch the House and you watch the legislature closely, you've noticed over, you know, recent years, certainly not new this year, that a lot of the debate isn't taking place as what you'd think of as debate. It's not on the House floor, you know, one lawmaker standing up in favor of something and someone standing up against it. It's happening more behind the scenes. Um, There's a room alongside the House chamber, the uh, members lounge, room 348. That sounds very suspicious. The members lounge, that does not exactly convey. There's like a Stephen King-esque vibe to the the room, too. (laughs) (laughs) We were thinking kind of Hamilton-y. It's the room where it happens. That works, too. Um, But not the room where any of the reporters are. 
Right. Or the or the public who wants to know how their state government is choosing to allocate nearly forty three billion dollars for a year's worth of government operations. Okay, so what is it like one by one the legislators traipse in there and make their case or how does that process actually work? Do we know? That's one of the things we've tried to find out over the course of last week's budget debate because we, we don't really know. As you said, we're not in the room. Um, we, what we've heard from some lawmakers, from some staffers, is that it is pretty much what Steve described. They they announce a, a meeting in this room at a certain time on a topic or set of topics, and lawmakers will go in and present their case to um, Ways and Means Chairman Aaron Michaelwitz um, or whoever the chair is at the moment. It's not always him. It wasn't him last year, but... And it, it isn't one-on-one. On one. There are groups of lawmakers in there at, a same t- at the same time. And one of the things we've heard from a few people is that, particularly for the, the new lawmakers who are going at this for the first time, it provides a, a really good opportunity to get to know each other, to learn about different parts of the state and different people's priorities, and a chance to kind of celebrate other people's victories as they come. Mm. But so how many open debates did we actually get? Uh, Rep. Holmes had one that actually did involve some floor discussion. Sure. There were really only two instances of what could be classically called debate. The, oh, great. The, the both <laughs> sides presented. <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of kind of explanation of maybe why it's a good idea to vote for this or what's being put before the lawmakers. But in ter- And almost everything passed unanimously. There were only... Um, I think six times there was a vote that was not unanimous. Hmm. Um, so it's there isn't a lot to debate. Some one lawmaker suggested to me it was because they're both sides of the aisle are working well together. There's a lot of consensus, but yeah, there was Rep. Russell Holmes's uh, amendment to rework the legislative pay structure, which he thinks would um, make everyone paid more equitably and kind of open up so members are not don't feel beholden to leadership. Um, and the other thing that got debate was related to the, the film tax credit, although that amendment was ultimately withdrawn, so there was no vote. There are only a total of 16 recorded votes on the four days of debate, and that includes one that was essentially to take attendance and one to meet past 9 o'clock one night and the, the ultimate vote to pass the budget, which the only lawmaker who voted in opposition was Russell Holmes. So place this in context for us then of the larger process, because the House now has done their part of the work. What happens now? And more importantly, what are the big issues that we think are potentially going to be worked out as this entire process unfolds? Sure. We'll see this month, the month of May, the Senate will release its own version of the the budget. Um, That'll come from the Senate Ways and Means Committee, which also has a new chairman this year in, in Mike Rodrigues. And They'll do their version of debate, which also involves some kind of backroom talks, um, but there's tends to be more talk on the floor as that goes on in the Senate. Um, and, you know, we'll look, as we do every year, there's some spending levels will be different. Um, the, the Senate last year created a, a little bit of a, a firestorm putting the uh, so-called Safe Communities Act, those uh, immigration uh, enforcement restrictions in their budget. We saw that play out in the elections. Um, There was a lot of fallout from that. So they could vote on something like that again. They could choose to do that. One thing a few people are watching is the funding levels for the University of Massachusetts. Um, Marty Meehan, the president there, has been kind of banging the drum for an extra $10 million in funding, which he says would allow them to freeze tuition this year. The House didn't include that. Um, so those people uh, 
who attend or have kids at or are otherwise invested in the UMass tuition are certainly uh, keeping their eyes on the Senate for that issue. Yeah, definitely. And so one of the last notes is that the House budget fell a little bit short of some particular aims of the Senate and also maybe the governor as well. So the governor is always a factor in these debates. How is the legislature factoring him in right now? Absolutely. Well, they've chosen to kind of put off his revenue proposals for now. He had that tax on the opioid manufacturers extending the tobacco tax to uh, e-cigarette products. And the legislature seems content to kind of wait on those. We'll see, of course, what the what the Senate does there. But they've also, in the House, the governor's not a big fan of local earmarks. He tends to veto those. Um, and the House certainly packed them in over the last week. And I'd expect to see those come through in the Senate as well. And everyone will get ready for overrides this summer. All right. Well, eyes on the Senate next. And uh, thank you, Katie, for guiding us. It's my job as a Sherpa. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Katie. Thanks, guys. It's no secret that immigration authorities have been much more aggressive since President Donald Trump took office. One of the most visible and controversial practices has been ICE showing up at courthouses to detain undocumented immigrants following scheduled court proceedings. This past week, district attorneys in Suffolk and Middlesex counties filed a lawsuit to stop the practice. Our next guest writes, Massachusetts is likely to become ground zero in this escalating battle over ICE's courthouse arrests. We're joined by our good friend Sarah Betancourt of Commonwealth Magazine, who broke the story. Sarah, welcome back to the horse race. Thank you for having me, Steve and Jen. So first off, give us the rundown of what this lawsuit is about. What does it do? Who filed it? And what specifically are they objecting to? So the Middlesex and Suffolk district attorneys filed the lawsuit in the U.S. District Court on Monday in conjunction with the Committee for Public Counsel Services and this advocacy group called Chelsea Collaborative. It's the first lawsuit of its kind in the nation, so the first time prosecutors are actually suing um, immigration enforcement. And they're being represented by Lawyers for Civil Rights and Goodwin Proctor. Um, And the lawsuit basically aims to vacate or do away with an ICE policy that was put in place in 2018 to allow federal agents to go into courthouses and perform civil arrest, which is something that really wasn't happening before. And it was filed by Rachel Rollins and Middlesex DA Marion Ryan. Obviously, Rollins has been in the news for a few other things lately. She's a new uh, Suffolk DA. Uh, Marion Ryan was reelected just in, in 2018. And their legal basis for the lawsuit was kind of interesting. So it was referring to the 10th Amendment and even common law. So what are they basing their case on? So... They, it's sort of a three-pronged approach, um, the two major ones being common law privileges protecting against civil arrest in criminal courts. So for a long time, um, court rulings have recognized this absolute protection against civil arrest of people attending court. Um, and this is something local prosecutors have been arguing. Um, and that protection sort of has... Uh, ensured that people in courthouses, regardless of the fact that they're immigrants, aren't arrested by federal agents um, in that, you know, federal agents are now in the past year and a half going into courthouses and disrupting criminal proceedings and other proceedings. I mean, this isn't just in criminal court. This is also happening in housing courts, family courts, um, basically any court. ICE is showing up in plain clothes and detaining or attempting to detain people. The constitutional aspect is the the 10th Amendment aspect. 
And that's sort of looking at the fact that the federal government, according to plaintiffs, is overreaching into state rights. So right now, every county has their procedure for the rule of law. And Marion Ryan and, and Rachel Rollins, along with other folks, are arguing that, hey, we want people to go through this rule of law that currently exists. But ICE is disrupting that. And that's a federal agency doing their own thing. So in essence, it's that they they want to be sure that people can show up to court without fear, whether it be a defendant or a witness or something like that, not have to fear it for their own arrest and deportation, regardless of their immigration status. Is that is that a fair summary? Uh, yeah, pretty much. And I mean, most of the people involved, in fact, all of them are actually non-citizen defendants and defendants and witnesses who are testifying and appearing in court. So in some situations, it's not even the person who's in the courthouse for a criminal proceeding. It might be a family member, it might be someone filing paperwork in housing court, or a friend of someone who's in a parking lot approaching one of these courthouses. So getting to the actual reaction here, Attorney General uh, Maura Healy applauded the lawsuit, as did uh, New Berkshire DA Andrea Harrington. So what has the reaction been for other political leaders so far? Um, so Ayanna Presley's office did uh, reach out and provide a statement, which we didn't include in the piece, but they were completely in support of the district attorneys and the immigrants' rights groups. Um, this sort of falls in line with a lot of the uh, dialogue that's been going around around immigration enforcement uh, being ramped up by President Donald Trump. And so it does really fall in line with a lot of Democrats' messages. But this is one of those situations where it, it does give you pause because it's the first situation where prosecutors are actually suing the federal government. So this comes, I think, noticeably on the heels of where a federal grand jury in Boston indicted uh, a Newton district court judge um, and, a, and a court officer on obstruction of justice for helping an undocumented immigrant in their courtroom actually evade ICE. So other than just being about the same topic, is there any relationship between the timing of the two? Was, was, uh, were Rollins and Ryan reacting to what happened or are the two unrelated? So, no, it's not actually related to the indictment of the other judge. Uh, Marion Ryan told me that this has been in the works since August 2017. Um, from other sources, I did hear initially that this was supposed to be filed last week, but they didn't want it to be on the heels of the indictment of Newton District Court Judge Shelley Richmond Joseph and the retired court officer. Um, it is separate, but... Um, in the presser that happened on Monday, it was noted that, you know, this is another example of situations where there's complications in courthouses between the jurisdiction of ICE and the jurisdiction of local prosecutors and court officers. Um, but it, it does come on the heels of a pretty unprecedented uh, indictment that U.S. Attorney Andrew Lelling uh, claimed that Shelley D Joseph and a court officer conspired to let a man out a back door when they realized there was a federal immigration agent in the courthouse. And there is some other context here because it isn't the first time we've heard of conflicts between ICE and state elected officials. You noted in your article that the former ICE acting director, Thomas Homan, wrote that courthouse arrests were often necessitated by the unwillingness of jurisdictions to cooperate with ICE and the transfer of custody of, quote, aliens from their prisons and jails. So what's going on here? What's, what's with this environment right now? So basically, ICE had 
a sort of vague policy prior to last January, January 2018. So in this directive um, that is sort of the main focus point of this lawsuit, former acting ICE director Tom Homan wrote that courthouse arrests are necessitated by jurisdictions like sanctuary cities um, and sanctuary states where ICE is attempting to transfer the custody of um, what they call aliens and illegal, illegal immigrants from prisons and jails. So their belief is that a lot of jurisdictions like Boston um, are not being cooperative enough with federal agents. So this directive aimed to rectify that. And when I asked uh, DA Ryan, um, well, you know, do, do they try to work in conjunction with court officers? Do they actually sign in and sort of let their presence be known she said, no, absolutely not. Um, they actually come in in plain clothes and do their own thing. And that's sort of the problem here. Are we seeing other states and cities do something? New York is uh, announced that they won't allow ICE agents um, to arrest undocumented immigrants in their buildings without a warrant, right? Um, so basically what New York did, New York state courts last week announced a, their own sort of administrative directive that bans ICE agents from arresting undocumented immigrants in the actual buildings. But this doesn't extend to the parking lots or the areas around where a lot of these arrests and attempted arrests are taking place. And New York would would um, ban them without a warrant signed by a judge. So if they do have a warrant signed by a judge, they would be able to do this. Um, however, there was a similar superior court um, effort last fall that failed. And the reason why Massachusetts has decided to go the way of a federal lawsuit is because um, they weren't as successful as New York in trying to do this sort of in an administrative directive. So it'll be interesting to see how this goes, because it's, like I said, and other folks are saying, completely unprecedented. All right. Well, Sarah Bettencourt of Commonwealth Magazine, we know you'll be keeping an eye on this. So uh, we'll talk to you again soon, I'm sure. Yes, absolutely. We're definitely keeping an eye on the temporary injunction on this. So hopefully we'll be in touch soon. Perfect. Thank you for joining us, Sarah. Thank you for having me. And now it's time for our Pony Express segment, where just for the last couple of weeks, we've gotten into official state stuff. So last week, we discussed how Massachusetts has seven official state songs, including, much to our great surprise, an official state polka. All right, so Jen, you reported exclusively on this podcast that there is no existing official copy of the state's polka. That clip that you all just heard was from an online tribute video a listener found on the internet for us last week. Well, my friends, my dear listeners, we have an update. Again, continuing our public service journalism that we on the horse race do value so highly. After our outreach, the state has gotten in contact with Lenny Gamolka and the Chicago Push, which, may I remind you, are a 12-time Grammy-nominated uh, polka band. So, like, we have some good authors behind this thing. And he actually was just out of town, but he just got back into town, and he is fixing the song link. So if you go to the Secretary of the Commonwealth's website in the near future, you too can be blessed with Say Hello to Someone in Massachusetts being stuck in your head for a full week. Absolutely. So, Massachusetts... This is public service journalism at its finest. 
You are welcome. So that is the official state polka story. But, you know, as a follow-up to this, we have so many state official things. Yes, we do. It's a wide and wonderful world of, of random state official stuff. Um, and one of our listeners, Katie Hollihan of the Associated Industries of Massachusetts, rattled off on Twitter a number of other official things we have here in Massachusetts. So, obviously... Like rocks. Yeah, rocks, soil, not just rocks either. We have rocks building monument stone, you know, which <laughs> sound like the same, the same thing. This but is I guess awesome. It's going to turn into the geology race. Yes, an official explorer rock, whatever that is. That's so, so we'll dope. find out. We're going to find out from Katie <laughs> next week. So we're going to have her on next week. And if you want to be on the horse race, send us your thoughts, comments, questions, etc., either to us on Twitter, where we live, or to thehorseracepodcast at gmail.com. But that's all the time we have. I like that we just said Twitter's not real life, but that's where we live. <laughs> I like that. I think that reveals something important about us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's true. It, it really is like the worst public square we could possibly have yeah. given ourselves. Where anybody can stand at any moment and just do or say whatever they want. But we can also yell about state rocks. And yes. that's, that's, and the, that's beauty the beauty of, of it. Twitter. It is. So thank you, Katie Hollihan. <laughs> we look forward to seeing you next week. But that is all the time we have. I'm Steve Cazella, president of the Massing Polling Group. And I'm Jennifer Smith of the Dorchester Reporter. Our producer this week and every week is Libby Gormley. Find us online wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you all for listening.